following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Luke 10, 25 to 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved to pity, moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Before today's sermon, I'd like to read this prayer um, uh, written by Walter Brueggemann. It's called On Peace and War, and it seems to have been written during the uh, Iraq War, but I think it fits for now as well. God, we are aware, acutely aware in your presence of the grind of tanks, of the blast of mines hidden against human flesh, of the rat-tat-tat of sniper fire. We are aware of the stench of death, bodies of our own military women and men, bodies of countless Iraqis, and the smell makes us shiver. Such smells and sounds are remote from us, but not remote from us are bewilderment and anxiety and double-mindedness. We are bewildered whether we are liberators or invaders, whether they are terrorists or freedom fighters, whether we should yearn for peace or savor victory. The world has become so strange and our place in it so tenuous, where gray seems clearer than the white purity of our hopes or the darkness of our deathly passions. There is so little agreement among us, perhaps so little truth among us, so little, good Lord, that we scarcely know how to pray or for what to pray. We do know, however, to whom to pray. We pray to you, Creator God, who wills the world good. We pray to you, Redeemer God, who makes all things new. We pray to you, stirring spirit, healer of the nations. We pray for guidance. And before that, we pray in repentance for too much wanting the world on our own terms. We pray for your powerful mercy to put the world and us in a new way. A way after Jesus who gave himself 
away after Jesus who confounded the authorities and lived more excellently. Whelm us by your newness, by peace on your terms, the newness you have promised, of which we have seen glimpses in your Son, who is our Lord. Amen. All right, I start with a question today, which is, what is your phobia? What's the thing that you're scared of? Is it um, snakes? Spiders? Heights? Crowds? Tom Brady? (laughs) Uh, Is there anybody willing to share? Who can... What's that? Bees. Bees. And they're honey. (laughs) Mel's a good friend of mine, so I can tease her about her phobias. I won't do that to any of the rest of you who share, though. I promise. (laughs) I didn't hear that one. What's the next? (laughs) What else are you afraid of? What? Oh, bats. I thought you said math at first. Okay, bats. Yeah. Math. Okay. I hear that. Yes, I see that hand. Oh, now it's getting real. Failure. Yeah. Wow. Insignificance. Oh. Oh, the men's bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, people being nasty to your children. Yeah. All right. Did you say police? Oh, bullies. Yes. Um, I have a lot of policemen in my family, and I can also acknowledge the fact that sometimes those are the same people. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Mental health collapse, fundamentalist churches. Yeah. Whoa. Okay, I'm going to put a brakes on this. What are your fears (laughs) thing? You said dementia and old age. Wow. Um, My goodness. These fears are real. Um, The title of the sermon today is Overcome Fear, but it's in the context of this new series that we started last week called Make Peace. This is something that we planned as a staff months ago, (laughs) Um, which is not to say that the world was in need of peace months ago, but, you know, this month and last, it's in a new, like, level of needing peace. So it's very timely. Um, with all the war in the world, with never-ending gun violence, with the rise around the world, including in our nation, in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, with the overt racism that we see around us, both individual and systemic, with bigotry and violence against the trans community, being codified into state laws in some states, Uh, Perhaps in addition to your own uh, ongoing phobias, you would add some things to my list about things in the world that are scary and which cause you to have less of a sense of peacefulness. And I think one of the frustrating things about this is that we feel so powerless against almost all of it. What does it even mean to make peace in this world against all that I've just listed and all of the things that you've mentioned, what could any one of us possibly do to make a difference? 
The truth is that very few people are called to a global scale of peacemaking. And, and I'm not one of them, and I don't know of any of you in the room who are. And yet we're bombarded day after day after day after day, minute by minute, as we doom scroll with the global scale of discord. Sometimes it leaves us wanting to throw up our hands and say, there's no hope. Why even bother trying? Uh, or, worse, probably, <laughs> giving in and joining in the violence. Because if you can't beat them, beat someone else. But I do believe, with all of my heart, that there is a reason for hope. And that the starting small is the only way we can start and that that is valid and that it's not just uh, a gesture or an exercise, that it actually is meaningful. I really do truly believe that starting small, since it is the only way that we could start, most of us, is enough. Remember that Jesus said if you are faithful in small things, you'll gradually be entrusted with bigger things. I think the flip side of that is that if you are not faithful with small things, you are not going to be entrusted with anything more. And I think our work, as we think about making peace in the world, is very often going to be something that doesn't look like making peace in the world. It's going to be like making peace in a six-foot radius. And I'll repeat something that I said last week. It's one of the few things that I think I know in the world. <laughs> which is that all or nothing is a lie. We have a song that we sing sometimes that has that line, and all or nothing is a lie that I'm done with. Um, I, I believe that many, many spiritual mountains remain unmoved as a consequence of all or nothing thinking. So, this Make Peace series, by the way, um, comes actually from a curriculum that our children's ministry is using, I think it's from the PCUSA, and it's um, designed to be used church-wide. And so our kids are doing some of this stuff on their level. We're doing some of this stuff on, uh, on hopefully more adult level. Uh, and if, if you have kids who are participating in the children's ministry, uh, I don't know that the weeks will always line up, but you can feel free to talk with them and just see what's going on down there. And maybe you can sort of share with them what's happening in your own mind and heart in this series about making peace as well. But we have this key verse from Matthew 5.9. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is, uh, we kind of get the core of Christian ethics from this teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. And I'm going to put it on the screen. Uh, look at that. It already is there. This key verse, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then the prayer that goes with it, let me be one who tries to live as a maker of peace. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, take a look and memorize that verse as best you can. If you don't get it completely right, that's okay. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And now we're all going to close our eyes and say it aloud. So I'm going to give you five more seconds to look at it. All right, let's try it. Close your eyes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I wonder if you could memorize that verse. I mean, for real memorize it, not the kind of memorizing that we just did where you passed the test. 
but come back to it later today and tomorrow. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then let's pray the prayer together, that second line together, shall we? Let me be one who tries to live as a maker of peace. Amen. So given all that I've said about you know, peace in a six-foot radius and starting small and all that stuff, it was fitting that we kicked off this series last week with a sermon called Cultivate Inner Peace, uh, in which sermon I encourage you to be like Jesus, who regularly went away to a quiet place to pray. I also talked um, maybe at some length about actually turning off your phone. I was kind of mean about it, and I'm not sorry. <laughs> and I didn't turn my phone off this week. I don't know if you did. Did anybody turn their phone off, like actually use the power button on the side of the phone this week? For a few minutes, okay. I see one hand and one for a few minutes. Running out of battery does not count. You might get the effect, but you do not get the moral credit. I also talked about simplifying our ethics down to that great commandment of Jesus, love God and love your neighbor as yourself which we are, as you can tell from the gospel readings today, we're going to revisit that a little bit. That simplifying ethics is a way to cultivate inner peace because it sort of frees you from the responsibility of thinking about complex geopolitical problems and feeling like in order to be a peacemaker, you have to have an opinion that's correct about them. And one of the things that I would like to revisit briefly that I said last week is that loving God, that first commandment, loving God is difficult in times like this. That sort of stuck with me throughout this week, like saying to myself, are you supposed to tell your parishioners that loving God is difficult? Are you being a good pastor? <laughs> right? Not to center myself in that story, but that's a challenging teaching for you and for me. But I think it's important for us to admit it, because I actually think it's something that we all feel at least a little bit, at least sometimes. And I want you to know that doesn't disqualify you from the life of faith or from participation in the community of faith that you're a part of. I don't think you should stop there, however. I don't think you should dwell in that or uh, kind of get stuck in the idea that loving God is difficult. I think we should all be striving to follow that great commandment. But I do think it's important maybe to start with acknowledging that it's hard. Harder than we probably give it credit for when we talk in religious communities about it. And as for the idea of loving our neighbors, that's something I think we can maybe go a little deeper on today using the parable that Jesus taught uh, to explore the idea of overcoming fear as a way of making peace. So it's really interesting to me that this uh, great commandment teaching that the that the The two great commandments, to love God with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, all of the other laws and prophets and writings and concepts hang on those two. That's something that Jesus teaches uh, in three of the different gospel accounts in the New Testament. And it's a little bit different in each one. Uh, You can kind of see that the, the author is remembering it a little differently, remembering different aspects of it, or maybe it's conflating two things that happened. This, by the way, is not a reason to discard the Bible as, quote-unquote, contradictory. 
um, those kind of contradictions are normal in uh, retelling stories. Um, so, for example, in last week's uh, reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the story was that a lawyer who was a Pharisee asks Jesus a question about the greatest commandment, specifically, what's the greatest commandment, in order to test Jesus. In Mark's gospel, which is not the one we're looking at today, and it's not the one we looked at last week, it's a teacher of the law. So like maybe a law school professor type of person. Maybe the uh, little uh, patches on the elbows of the jacket. I don't know. In today's case, in Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, asks the man in return, what do you find in the law? He sort of turns the question back to the questioner. And the man answers for him, well, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's really interesting to me that in this account, it becomes clear to us that these two laws were already known to the questioner. They were already part of the Jewish law. They come from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, respectively. I always love to point out the fact that this love your neighbor as yourself comes from that real touchy-feely book known as Leviticus. The man already knew these laws. Jesus didn't make them up new. I think sometimes Christians are like, oh, Jesus has this, this brand new uh, ethic that you know, transcends the teachings of Judaism. That's actually, the story's more complicated than that. Right? He got these laws from what was already there and focused them in and said, these are the two that you, you need to start with. But then the lawyer presses him about that second law, loving your neighbor as yourself, but with the question, who is my neighbor? Which is a great question, and thank God for attorneys. (laughs) Because they help us know the limits of our obligations. (laughs) Right? No one wants to do more than they're required to, and no one wants anyone else to do less than they're required to, and the lawyers kind of help us sort that out. Sometimes they're good at their job, sometimes they're not. That's true of every profession, by the way. Anyway, Jesus does what he so often does, which is that he answers a lawyerly question with a story, which must have been so frustrating for that lawyer. I just said thank God for lawyers, so now I can say a mean thing about lawyers. Lawyers probably don't like when lawyerly questions are answered with stories. That doesn't actually hold up in court very well. What the lawyer wants is what all of us want, by the way, which is a straightforward, simple, clear answer to a question that we have. And Jesus answers with a story. Now, you might have heard the parable of the Good Samaritan a hundred different times. Depending on how much church exposure you have, you've probably heard it preached on a dozen times. Even if you're not a churchy person at all, the phrase Good Samaritan is familiar to you. But I wonder how many of you knew that the parable of the Good Samaritan was not a standalone teaching, but was actually a way of answering the question, who is my neighbor? So let's talk about the parable a little bit. First of all, some context for those of you who don't have high church exposure. Um, The characters in this story are the man who was beaten and robbed and left on the highway on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem, a very curvy, dangerous road where lots of crime probably took place. Uh, The Levite and the priests. Now, the Levites were the descendants of Levi, 
and they had the priestly duties kind of by heredit by uh, uh, what am I trying to say by her by heredity, thank you. That's not usually the way that word is used, I don't think. But they inherited this priestly role by virtue of who their parents were, basically. They had an important religious function in the community uh, of the Israelites. The priests had a priestly function that was maybe more a little bit adopted. They didn't have the, uh, the heritage that called them uh, part of the priestly tribe, but they had some priestly duties to, to perform. And you can imagine that there might have been some tension between these two groups, but that they both had important roles in the community and were both kind of looked on as examples, for better or for worse, of how to live as a faithful follower of God. And then there's the Samaritans. The Samaritan is the, the one, of course, who actually helped the man. The two religious leaders um, crossed over and, and went on their way. The Samar Samaritan helped the man. And who were the Samaritans? They were an ethno-religious sort of subgroup. They were kind of Jewish, but not really. They probably um, descended from a part of the Jewish family that was sort of outside of the discerned correct group, right? Um, they had slightly different practices, and they were determined to be kind of inferior to real Jews. Like, they were kind of the... Um, um, the half bloods you know they were they had a muggle parent maybe you know <laughs> um, and so what, what the uh, making peace curriculum says about this I'm going to quote it for you because it's really well said at the heart of the parable is discerning how to cut through ethnic tensions and socially defined boundaries that subordinate others and leave people alone on a dangerous road and in harm's way and that, to me, is starting to sound a little bit like something we see happening in our own world. What this is describing, uh, to bring it back to the idea of phobias, is xenophobia. Xenophobia is fear of the foreigner, or the alien, or the stranger. Fear of the other. We have some other people-based phobias in our vocabulary, don't we? Maybe you could shout out a few of them for me. Transphobia. Transphobia. Thank you. What else? Sexism. Okay, sexism. Um, spe I'm specifically looking for words that have phobia in them. Islamophobia. Islamophobia. Homophobia. Homophobia. And, so, and we do have these other ones. You know, We might include anti-Semitism alongside Islamophobia, as so often we do. In fact, I did earlier in this sermon, but it doesn't have the word phobia in it. The, what's that? Yeah, yeah, the general idea of xenophobia is kind of like this catch-all thing, but we see it playing out in these specific ways in our culture. And I'm fascinated by this linguistic thing, and this is why I specifically say um, I want words that end in the word, pho the, the, you know, the word phobia. Because I've wondered about this. Is it really fear that we're identifying with those things, or is it hatred? Right? Um, is a person who's homophobic afraid of gay people? Uh, is a person who's transphobic afraid of trans people? Is a person who's Islamophobic afraid of Muslims? Well, uh, yes and no. I think what we usually identify when we use those terms is that they, they hate those groups of people. 
And I wonder why we categorize them sort of linguistically in the same category as fear of spiders or crowds or snakes or heights. Because it doesn't seem like the same thing that's happening in their minds and hearts. Let me put something out there that's slightly half-baked. I usually try to fully bake my ideas before I put them in my sermon notes. <laughs> uh, but in this case, I want to entrust you with a half-baked idea because it's, it's somewhat personal to me. And I, I, I think that I can bring it back around to what we're talking about. I'll start by saying this. Uh, this, this is a conversation I had after last week's sermon, actually. When you talk about loving your neighbor as yourself, you kind of have to start with a basic amount of love for yourself, or that commandment's not going to get you very far toward the Christian ethic. In other words, if you sort of hate yourself, then loving your neighbor in that way is not going to do your neighbor any good. One of the things that I have learned about myself in the past four or five years, is that almost everything that I claim to hate or deride in other people is actually something that I probably hate about myself. I'll give you a very silly example. It's very easy for me to go to a concert. We don't need to name any bands in this moment. Let's just say a concert where people might be dancing in a silly-looking way, and to look at them and go, look at those silly people dancing in their silly way. I shall stand here in a dignified way (laughs) and judge them. When what's really going on in my deepest heart of hearts is probably, I would like to be enjoying myself just like that, but I'm scared of how I will look, what people will think of me. And so my... Hatred of this other person, and hatred might be a strong word in this case, is actually a hatred, and that also might be a strong word, of myself. And that runs really deep. And the more you try to unpack that and unwind that, every time you want to swear at someone or flip them off or, you know, driving in the car or in the grocery store aisle or all the things that you might have that are the things that really annoy you about other people, I would invite you to spend a quiet moment and ask yourself, is this actually about me? Am I having trouble loving my neighbor because I'm actually having trouble loving myself? And it's just easier to hate them than to love me. That's my half-baked idea that gets us back to phobia, to say that I wonder if these phobias that we call hatreds or that we think of as hatreds are actually more fear-based than we might know or than we might assume, than they might appear on the face of it. This tragic story this past week of a, uh, a person who took their own life because they were discovered to have been, he was a... a a male presenting person who was discovered to have been dressing in women's clothing and held a position in the community where that was deeply unacceptable. And he lasted two days after it became national news. I mean, and when it comes to the gender and sexuality-based phobias that we have named... You don't have to go very far through the news before you find instance 
after instance after instance of people who have been the loudest proclaimers of hatred toward a community suddenly being publicly outed as actually part of the community. So I think maybe there is something to the idea that hatred and phobia are kind of maybe two sides of the same coin. And yet what this story that Jesus tells us offers to us is an example of someone who would be easily categorized among the hated, acting in a way that is undeniably the way that Torah, and we would extend that into Christian ethics, calls people of God to act. But here's the other thing I would say about this story, is that we need to allow it to stretch us. Because it was very stretching, I imagine, for that teacher of the law, that paragon of Judaic purity, to hear a story in which the Samaritan was the hero. And what we must not do with that story is go, yep, ain't that the way of it. I am such a Samaritan. And there, look at all these priests and Levites all around me, ignoring the teachings of Jesus. Right? And in some cases, this is what makes it complicated. In some cases, if you sort of hold the light at a particular angle, that's probably accurate and true. You probably are the one who's living in a more Christ-like way in the narrow little strip of land that you've carved out for your own personal ethics. But listen up. If Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan to some of us, it would not be a Samaritan who was good. It would be someone else. Think of the people you personally would never invite to your dinner party. Think of the people on the highway who go by you and their car is covered with bumper stickers that make you go, oh, come on. It's election season, and I don't know about you, if you ever leave the city, you might not, if you never leave the city, you might not see the other type of election signs that are on people's lawns. The ones for the people you can't imagine anyone would ever vote for. I'm not making any assumptions. I'm making a lot of assumptions here. (laughs) But if you only stay in your neighborhood, It's kind of easy to love your neighbors politically because you probably have the same political signs on your lawn that they do on theirs. And believe me, I drive out into the suburbs back and forth three days a week and I see all of the other signs. And if they drove past my street, they would see something different. Listen, the parable of the good blank voter might be the parable that you need to hear. By the way, election day is Tuesday. And local elections matter a lot. So please get out there and cast your vote on Tuesday. Um, Because that is one way that we express our our ethics and our worldview as people of Christ. And I will never, as you know, I'll never tell you how to vote or for whom. Um, 
but I think you should. I really believe that those people who you find it hardest to love would be the ones playing the role of the Good Samaritan if Jesus told his parable just for you. And I further believe that our role in making peace probably starts not in Gaza or in Kiev, but at the dinner table, on the highway, and in our very own neighborhoods. And so my question for you today is, are you willing to start there? Not can you start there, because I know you can. Are you willing to start there? I think that sometimes we look to the global matters and our impossible, how impossible they are, how, how little we can actually do about them, because that's true. And that becomes an excuse for us to say, well, I wish I could do something. What you can do is start to make peace in that six-foot radius. And I'll ask you again, are you willing to start there? Let's pray. God of peace, we, we call you God of peace, and yet we are people who struggle to be at peace. We pray today that you would call to mind for us and, and impress upon our hearts the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan, stretching us, exhorting us to make peace in our own neighborhoods, on our own roads, at our own tables. And we pray that you would allow us to see the miracle of duplication that can happen when we take these steps of faith to make peace in our own small community. Help us not to grow weary in doing what is good and right. Not to become overwhelmed by the hugeness of what we can't do. But rather to be inspired to do the small thing that you've called us to do. We pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 